Well, as Pastor Brad has read, our series is based on the book of Hosea, one of the minor prophets. And like most any book, uh, this book has shown us that it's packed with emotion. We hear the emotion of God as he tells his side of the story. We see the emotion in the man of Hosea as he lives part of this story. And books have a way of bringing emotions out of us. It doesn't matter if the book is a historical novel, uh, a fictional story, a children's story, a book of the Bible. Books have a way of taking emotion from us. We even have a way of inserting our story into that story, letting that story affect our lives. It feels like we're part of it together. And in this story, it's like the feelings are jumping off the pages. They have that capacity to move us, to transform us. And the books of the Bible can certainly do this just as well as any other book can. When Danny was preaching last week, he admitted that it isn't easy to read the book of Hosea out loud. That's why I thought I would pay back Pastor Brad for avoiding Danny's text last week by having him do it himself. If I remember right, Danny said that Hosea is an extremely awkward book to read from. And he should know, because he read from it. He preached from it. And he read and preached from chapter 2, which is especially awkward. If I had to choose a feeling to describe the book of Hosea, the feeling I would choose is uncomfortable. Their words are harsh. The images are difficult. And God's feelings are posted all over the book. And it's shocking how raw they are. And it doesn't change. Chapter after chapter, you get more and more of this stuff, and it just makes you feel uncomfortable. Now, all of us knows what it's like to feel uncomfortable. Some of you might feel uncomfortable right now. You're sitting next to a whole bunch of church people. You're listening to a preacher talk. This makes lots of people feel uncomfortable. Now, I don't like feeling uncomfortable because I'm human. And pretty much every person I've ever met doesn't like feeling uncomfortable. In fact, in some sense, the whole quest of being a person is to find comfort, to achieve comfort, to do everything that you possibly can to make yourself feel good and feel right and to feel relaxed and comfortable. We adjust the heat. We feed our stomachs. We avoid things we don't like. We spend time with people we know. We go to places we like. And we don't talk to strangers. It's just some of the things that we do to avoid uncomfortable situations. Most of us spend a good amount of our lives pursuing comfort. And most of us do what we can to avoid feeling uncomfortable. A number of years ago, a friend of mine told me a story about her and her younger brother. Her brother's, I don't know, three, four years younger than she is, and they lived in the bottom part of, of their home, and their parents' bedroom was upstairs. And so when she was young, her father instructed her and her brother that if there's anything you need at night, you just call out my name. You don't even have to get up out of bed. If you feel sick to your stomach, if you're thirsty, if you're scared, if you need anything, you're cold, just call out my name. And so this friend of mine says she would do that from time to time. She'd yell out, Dad, Dad, and Dad would come down and help her. Well, as her brother began to grow older and learn this trick as well, sometimes they would actually help each other. She could wake up and she would hear her brother yelling out, Dad, but he wasn't old enough and strong enough, so she would yell too, Dad, Dad, what do you need? Uh, he needs you. Oh, okay, and go into the other room. Well, one night, apparently, the brother was yelling out for her father and his sister was helping her out. And he came down dutifully and he asked his son, what do you need? Thinking that it could have been a whole bunch of different options. And his reply, I think he was four or five years old, was, I'm not comfortable. 
Wake up in the middle of the night, I'm not comfortable. I don't even know what the dad did. But it's amazing to me that someone that young can understand that something's not right. I just want to feel comfortable. Nothing's really wrong, but just make me feel more comfortable. When I feel uncomfortable, I usually think of three options. It seems like there's really three things you can do about it. You can try to make yourself more comfortable. You can leave the situation altogether. Or you can deal with the discomfort. You can deal with the rock in your shoe. You can deal with feeling cold. You can do something about it. For all the good things that come with being comfortable, which is namely comfort, there are some problems that can come with it too. Comfort has a way of keeping us in the same place. You ever notice that? Comfort has a way of keeping us in the same place. Which is why most of us feel the right, we feel entitled to not needing to do anything else once we reach our preferred level of comfort. I think this is why the remote control was invented. How many times are you on the couch and you call out to someone else in the home, can you grab me a drink of water? Can you do this since you're up? I've reached my preferred level of comfort here. I'm not moving. But this also means the opposite is true as well. Discomfort has a way of moving us. Whether you're a child lying in bed and something's not right, whether you're in a relationship that isn't feeling right, whether there's some sort of barrier or obstacle that you're meeting up against, discomfort has a way of moving us. It gets our attention. And as much as we might hate feeling uncomfortable, the very feeling motivates us to do something about it. It might take pain. It might take work. It almost always requires some sort of action. But all of this movement happens as a result of feeling uncomfortable. No pain, no gain. Now that's an inspiring slogan to say, but it's a painful one to live by. And yet if any of us have any interest in growing in any part of our life, I think it's a valid principle. It takes some sort of effort. It takes some sort of discomfort to actually move us into something better, into something else that is needed. Which brings us back to Hosea. A book that defines the word uncomfortable to me. If this book is filled with discomfort, if this book is filled with awkwardness and and dread and difficulty, doesn't this also mean that its message has the potential to move us? To actually get us in a different place? I think the context of the story would tell us this. After all, it's a book about God the Father equipping a prophet to send a message. Something isn't right here. The prophet is sent to deliver a message to Israel because they should feel some discomfort. They should feel moved. They should feel inspired to make a change. So these uncomfortable words are spoken with hope that Israel will in fact be moved, that she will change. But up to this point in the book, the words have been pretty obscure, haven't they? If you followed along with our series, you would have heard myself and Brad and Danny speak about chapters 1, 2, and 3. Chapters 1 and 3 pretty much outline Hosea's family life, and that's about as awkward and as uncomfortable as it can get. Hosea is told by God to take a promiscuous woman to be his wife, so he marries her. Then we learn about the children, the son that bears the likeness of both Hosea and Gomer, as well as the children who quite likely may have come from another man. And then we see all these strange and improbable images that happen. And whenever I think of the book Jose or talk to someone about our sermon series, you know, this is usually what comes up first. Oh, isn't that that 
odd prophet who marries that woman? Yep, that's the book. That's the book. Chapter 2 is awkward. It's sandwiched in between Hosea's odd choice of a bride and his determined journey to buy her back from the life that she has fallen into. Chapter 2 isn't easy to understand either. It's full of odd comparisons and poetic descriptions. And through it all, it's actually hard to know what Israel has done wrong. God sounds like a scorned lover in this book. His words sound like they come from a man who recklessly gives everything he has to a woman he fancies, only to see her smirk at him as she is led by the hand by another man while she carries off all the things God gave her under her other arm. It's not a pretty picture. It's quite awkward and uncomfortable. Now, there's other parts of the Bible that give us a feel for God's broken heart, but they don't feel as personal as the words in this book do. Maybe it's because God's heart is compared with a man's heart, and we're able to identify with that a little bit better. Maybe it's because this whole topic of disappointment and a broken heart and infidelity is all over this book. We don't hear much about Israel's story. We don't read much about what Israel thinks, how she feels, what her defense is, and all of this. We don't know why and how she runs away. Instead, we're bombarded page after page with how God feels and what he wants to do about it. And I think this was probably done by design. Abraham Heschel, a Jewish writer, says this about Hosea's focus. He says, Hosea never tries to plead for the people or to dwell upon the reasons for the people's alienation from God. He only has one perspective, the divine partner. And so that's the picture that we get. God pouring out his heart through the prophet Hosea all throughout this book. And so we read his version of the story. He's the voice we hear. He's the one who speaks. And so in chapter 2, we hear him mourn his loss. And then we hear him shout out warnings to the nation. Israel will be stripped naked. Israel will chase after other lovers, but she won't be able to catch them. Israel's vines and fig trees will be ruined. All her celebrations will be silenced. Israel will be punished. She'll be exposed for who she truly is. Not just an unfaithful spouse, but an unfaithful spouse with no apparent shame. But these actually aren't the words of a bitter boyfriend. God isn't trying to make himself feel better by making Israel feel worse. His words are the words of a persistent partner. He desperately wants Israel to return. But whenever a person returns, they're required to turn around. They must choose to turn around. They have to make a change and do something different. Otherwise, they'll just keep going where they're going. If they don't turn, nothing's going to change. The horizon will continue to be the same, and they'll have no reason for ever coming back. The odd part about chapter 2 is we don't hear much about what Israel has done wrong. We don't really know with much detail what her offense is. We know she's been unfaithful. We know she's pursued other gods, other religious systems, other faith-based networks. But we don't really know what these things are and why Israel chose to do them. But all of this ambiguity is completely washed away once we reach chapter 4 which Pastor Brad just read out loud to us all. It's here that we get a new image. A new image in this book. No longer do we have an image of, of a marriage between a man and a woman. Now we have an image of a courtroom. This is where the crimes will finally be painted out for everyone to see. The plaintiff is God. The defendants are the people of Israel. And it's like we, we have a case between God versus the people. 
And Hosea is playing the role of the prosecutor. And chapter 4 very much sounds like Hosea's opening argument. And so he begins in chapter 4 by stating his opening argument. He says there's no faithfulness. There's no loving kindness. No knowledge of God in the land. Instead, there's only swearing, lying and murder, stealing and adultery. They all break forth and bloodshed follows bloodshed. I've only been in a courtroom a few times in my life. I don't know how long it even spanned. Maybe 30 minutes, an hour. But I watch TV, so I know how these things work, right? I know, these, I know these trials that extend for weeks or for days. And, and I've seen the footage of that opening argument and, and how important it is for the prosec- prosecutor. Because the prosecutor is trying to convince the jury or the judge, whoever it is, about the case that they're going to make. And so clarity at that very beginning is so crucial. They will say, I am going to show you throughout my time how there's no doubt no doubt whatsoever that he or she is guilty of this. And you get a specific charge. And then they're going to tell you exactly how they're going to prove that to you so that you're convinced. Here, we get a list of charges. we got a whole swath of them. Israel's not done the very things she vowed to do is kind of what we see there. We've got no faithfulness, no loving kindness, no knowledge of God in the land. This is kind of the, the essential pursuit of the people of Israel. And then we get into some things that are identified specifically that have to do with the very law, the Torah, the, the Ten Commandments. But then a really strange thing happens in verse 4. It's strange because it's hard to know exactly what is happening. And the accusing words, as they start out in this opening argument, kind of broad, kind of to the whole people of the land in Israel, perhaps kind of painted out there for anyone who wants to hear, They're directed in a different place. They become directed to the priests. Quite possibly just one priest. For whatever reason, Hosea seems to isolate his charge against one specific priest, and he pretty much tells him to shut his mouth because the Lord's complaint is directed at him. This is how most interpreters understand this passage because the Hebrew is a little bit tricky. It's hard to know exactly what's going on here. But it's almost as if they envision Hosea beginning his argument And somewhere in his audience, a priest actually interrupting him and challenging him and asking why he would dare bring a charge against them. If we go back to our courtroom scene, it'd be like if if someone yelled out objection during the opening argument. And Hosea then turns and he points his finger at the priest and he says, my complaint is against you, O priest. And then as he keeps talking, he extends this to the entire clergy, all of the priests, those who have been charged with that responsibility. And we finally get a sense for what their chief problem is, what God's primary complaint is. In verse 6, we hear Hosea say through the Lord's words, My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Because you've ignored the law of your God, I also will ignore your children. The biggest complaint that God has is a lack of knowledge. The problem is the rejection of knowledge. The same charge that's brought against the people is now pinned onto the priests. There is no faithfulness, no love, and no knowledge of God in the land. Now, when I hear the word knowledge, when I think of knowledge, I think of information transfer. I think that there's usually a pretty simple solution when someone is, is not knowledgeable about something. 
As people living in our day and age, we have all sort of strategies and all sort of great ideas for how to impart and grab and transfer information. We know how to access information. We know how to transfer it. We know all about education. If a lack of knowledge is really the problem, we have more than enough solutions. We get a different teaching strategy. We replace a teacher. We find new curriculum. We tailor the information for the audience. We allow the students to learn as the students would like to learn and not how the teachers would like to teach them. If all else fails, we just use more technology. There's more ways to educate and to teach people knowledge and information. We just simply find something that works and try that instead. And I find it tempting to look at this complaint a lack of knowledge, a rejection of knowledge to the priests and to the people and to think, oh, well, we can fix that. But knowledge goes far beyond just head knowledge. In fact, as we look at the book of Hosea, it encompasses much more than just some sort of intellectual knowing of who God is. When you think about head knowledge in and of itself, I think we use that term and we assume that, but quite often we know that we're talking about something much more than that. When head knowledge is all that's there, we find that change doesn't happen very easily. If head knowledge was all that mattered, I don't think people would suffer from repeating the same mistakes over and over and over again because they would just learn in their head and they wouldn't do anything else, right? You and I could stop our bad habits as soon as we wanted to, as soon as we learned the facts. We could change our behavior as soon as we found out, hey, actually, this is hurtful behavior. But knowledge of God is connecting the head and the heart to the feet and the hands. For lack of a better word, knowledge of God is holistic knowledge. It encompasses far more than just intellectual capacity. And so as we look throughout Hosea's book, we see that knowledge, this word that he uses for knowing God and knowledge of God or a lack of knowledge is connected to multiple dimensions. There's a covenantal dimension. Failing to know God is actually the same as breaking covenant. We find that out the beginning of chapter 8. Because they've not known God, God interprets that as saying, you have not fulfilled what you have vowed to me. There's a covenantal aspect. Then there's a cognitive dimension. Knowledge of God can be taught, it can be forgotten, it can be rejected. And this is kind of the, the mental head knowledge part of this. It actually does have to do with information. Knowing who God is, what He expects, what that looks like. And then there's a commitment dimension as well. Knowing God has to do with love and loyalty towards God, as well as to neighbor. It's this understanding if you are to know those around you, if you are to know God, then this is actually going to change how you live and how you fill. The best way to describe this knowledge is probably by using a metaphor that's, all, that's used all throughout this book, and that's marriage. Knowing a spouse includes a lot of things, much more than just knowing history about that person, knowing them intellectually. Their shared experience, physical intimacy, trust, loyalty, faithful commitments, the list goes on and on for knowing each other in that sort of relationship. But Israel has lost this. They've forgotten it. They've rejected it. Somehow it's missed its mark. And because they haven't kept their covenant, they'll be kept from experiencing the blessings of the covenant. And so as Hosea continues his speech from the Lord, he gives these warnings. And he warns that Israel will eat, but they won't have enough. They'll engage in prostitution, but they won't be satisfied. They'll seek the Lord. This is interesting. They'll seek the Lord, but they won't find him. And the reason why is because their deeds do not permit them to return. 
They have self-willed themselves. They have chosen to actually set up a barricade between them and God. But again, instead of pointing the finger at the people, the Lord points at the leaders. The clergy are pointed out because they're the ones who are entrusted to teach. They're the ones who have been commissioned to shepherd the people. They're the ones called to equip the people with the knowledge of God. This is their responsibility. They are the ones who steward this, who own this. Author James Lindbergh explains the situation pretty clearly. He says that the base of the problem was a matter of religious education. Israel did not know because her teachers had not taught her. Israel did not know. The people were lost because her teachers, those given the authority to teach and to guide and to shepherd, were also lost. They did not fulfill their responsibility. I don't like this passage. Chapters 4 and 5 are not fun chapters. They're not feel-good passages. They're, they're easy not to like. They're hard to read with a smile on your face. I'm not a songwriter, but if I were, I would not write a song out of these chapters. Maybe it can be done, but I don't know how many people would want to sing it. And these words just stare you in the face, daring you to read them, daring you to think what they actually mean for your own life. And as one of the leaders of this church, as a preacher as well, this section makes me feel uncomfortable because I'm forced to think about what it says to me. I'm forced to put myself in the shoes of the priests who were singled out by God for their failure in the roles that they had been given. I can't help but agree with what Lindbergh says when he says this text contains not so much a word for preaching and teaching as words for the preacher and teacher. And yet, isn't this the point of God's words to Israel through His prophet Hosea? Isn't the point to take time and to consider what they mean? What happened to Israel? How they got there? If the priests have failed and the people have no knowledge of God, what in the world were they doing? How did it come to that point? How did everyone get so lost? What does this say about that time in history? What does it say about our time in history here in our church? Whenever I read the prophets, I'm tempted to read very quickly. I'm tempted to speed up instead of slowing down. Part of it's the style. I love story. I love narrative. I'm able to identify with that better. I'm able to understand that better. So I have trouble following words in the book of Hosea. I have trouble listening to poetry and prophetic literature and understanding exactly what it means. But that's my immediate reaction. That's probably my excuse. If I dig a little bit deeper into why I have trouble reading sections of Scripture like this, I think it's because I'd rather come up with a quick solution than to sit and think about all the painful stuff. The unresolved stuff. The uncomfortable stuff. The heavy-hitting stuff. And the prophets have this incredible way of dragging us through all these words that sound sometimes overly exaggerated and they leave me feeling exhausted. Like reading the book of Hosea is tiring. It's emotionally exhausting. But I can't help but wonder if part of the purpose of this book is to make us feel the very things that we'd rather skip over. I love resolution. It doesn't even have to be a happy ending. I just want an ending. 
And here, it's like there's no ending in sight. I want finality. I want completeness. And so as I read through chapter 4, I search for the transition. I search for the aha moment. I search for the point where Isaiah gets, or excuse me, Israel gets it. And and they have this moment of of an epiphany or or sorrow or something, and it doesn't come. And I get into chapter 5, and the awkwardness just lingers, and it doesn't seem like anything is resolved. There's nothing there. I was thinking about this uncomfortable passage earlier this week. It dawned on me that we, do, we don't know how, how long Israel was listening to this message. We don't know how much of Hosea's life this story encompassed. It's very easy for me to turn the page. But how long was Hosea giving this message? How often was he repeating this message? Was it days? Was it years? Can you imagine living in that awkwardness of these chapters for season upon season and year after year of your life, both as the man Hosea did and as the people of Israel would have heard it? I have a habit of moving too quickly towards resolution. And sometimes when I, when I move too quickly, I miss out on the pain that I'm supposed to experience. Now, missing out on pain doesn't sound too bad, does it? But pain has a way of moving us further along than we had ever gone without it. Pain helps us grow. But it requires us to sit in the mud much longer than we would like. I got to meet with the small group that I'm now a part of because we did our our first week this past Tuesday. Got to meet some, some people that I know here at Jericho Ridge. And we met in our life group. And we got to know each other. And we began our study. And the study that we're looking on is one story, mostly known as the story of the lost son, the story of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. And so we read the story and we listened to to the speaker. We're following a DVD study. And I don't know how many times I've read this story, heard this story, but this past week I heard something different. The story is of a man who has two sons, the younger Son says to his father, give me my share of the inheritance. And so that's what his father does. He divides up his estate. He gives the younger son his share and his younger son leaves. And according to Jesus, who's the one who tells this story, he squanders his wealth in wild living. Now it's a poor decision. I think most people would understand that. But it's even more foolish because of how timing works. A severe famine hits the land. So he's squandered everything he's had, everything he's entitled to later on in life. He's already given up. And now he's sitting there with a famine with pretty much no options. And so he hires himself out to work in the fields feeding pigs. His situation gets so bad that his stomach begins to growl as he shovels out food to the pigs. And he reaches the point of actually dreaming about what it would be like to actually eat their food. And then an amazing thing happens. And I love how this is phrased in Luke chapter 15. Jesus says the younger son comes to his senses. He looks at his current life and he compares it to the life that he used to know. And when he does that, he comes up with a plan of how he can return to his father. I can't help but wonder how long it took that boy to come to his senses. Did he stand near the pig pen for a really long time? Would it have taken him longer to come to his senses if his life hadn't reached that pit? Would he have never returned? 
if he didn't have the means necessary to recognize his senselessness. What about Israel? How long will it take them to return? What will it take for them to come to their senses? Will they allow the uncomfortable message that they've heard to actually shape them? Or will they ignore it and just move along? And what about you? What about us? How long will it take us? What do we need to actually come to our senses? The priests and the people have no knowledge of God. They've either lost it or they've rejected it. And if the knowledge of God is a right relationship with God, then knowing God is really like coming to our senses. It's the only rational thing for us to do. Putting ourselves in the story of Hosea's book doesn't feel good, but I think it's necessary. It's necessary because it can become a habit to quickly confess our wrongdoings without really thinking about the weight that they bear. I know that I do it. It's a trap to get into quite easily. I can be quick to confess without realizing what I've really done and how this makes God feel. And when I move too quickly, I actually become unattached to the heart of God, even though I'm theoretically doing all the right things. Sometimes what we need most is time. It can take time to reach the point of wanting to return. It can take time to realize that returning is the only thing that really makes sense. And I wonder if some of us don't sit in the mud long enough to give ourselves the time we need to come to our senses. Instead, we can keep going from place to place with our pockets filled with mud, going about life, putting on a good face, but leaving muddy footprints everywhere that we go. It's just enough to make everything dirty, but it's not messy enough to put us in a place that will actually help us come to our senses. Sometimes we have to sit in the mud long enough to realize that we're desperately in need of a bath. And I wonder if some of us are programmed to quickly say we're sorry before we let the indictment linger, before we actually feel that weight of what has happened and why we have done that. Repentance is different than saying we're sorry. Repentance is different than apologizing. Saying we're sorry is our way of taking responsibility for the past. Repenting is choosing to change our future. It's turning ourselves around so we don't repeat our past folly. It's acknowledging that God's ways are better than our ways. It's not just reaching the point of coming to our senses. It's actually reaching the point of taking actions from what we have learned. Now, the quick response to a message like this is to repent. And for me to say to everyone, it's time to repent. It's time for us to confess our sins to God and ask Him for the strength to direct us in the right direction. And maybe some of you are there already. Maybe some of you have seen the mud in your lives. Maybe you've recognized that sense of knowing what makes sense to you and what you need to do at this point. And if God has prompted you to do this, then by all means, be obedient. Confess, repent, and return. But if this is not where you're at, my challenge, you is not, my challenge to you is not to do something, but to try to feel something. Take time to look at your life and ask God what he thinks about it. Take time to look at your life and ask God how he feels about it. Next week's message will predominantly focus on the theme of repentance. The what to do once we've reached the point of what these chapters are telling us to think about. But we've got to come to our senses before we can act 
on our senses. And many times we don't reach the capacity to truly repent until we stop and look at our lives to see if they really make any sense at all. This takes time and it can get very, very muddy. But it's always worth it when it helps us return home. So as a people, let's be willing to sit in the mud and listen to what God has to say. It might be what we need to reach the point of coming to our senses. The band's going to play some music at this time. And I don't want you to feel the expectation to sing. You might just want to sit quietly and listen. You might want to look at the words. You might want to look at the floor. You might want to close your eyes. You might even want to talk to someone about it. And we're going to have people that are available to listen to you and to pray if that's what you would request. I'll be over here on your left and Pastor Brad will be over here on your right and there will be others as well to pray with you. Take time to listen to your life. Take time to ask God how He feels about your life. And as we reflect, let me pray. Lord, I thank you that we don't serve a piece of wood, to use the words that Hosea uses. I thank you that you have feelings. I thank you that you desperately want to be in relationship with us. I thank you that when we are lost, you pursue us. And you hurt when we are hurting. And so, Lord, even though this may make many of us feel uncomfortable, I ask that you would give us the capacity to wait on you, to take time and to listen, to feel what you feel, and to know the current state of where we're at and where you would have us. So Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to us now, that we would recognize your presence in this place, and that you would use this pain to shape us, that you would use our depravity to turn to be turned into beautiful things, God, because you are worthy of all of our love. Amen.